0: This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. About 7 million people in the U.S. have received the one-shot Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine, but after six women developed blood clots, federal officials called for a pause in distribution. The CDC says it's reviewing the cases, also noting blood clots are an extremely rare side effect of this vaccine. State and local officials say there should be enough supply of other vaccines, despite the pause on the Johnson & Johnson shot. For more on these issues with the vaccine and what it means for vaccinations overall and vaccine hesitancy, I spoke with Dr. Ali Mokhtar, Professor of Health Metrics Sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and Chief Strategy Officer for Population Health at the University of Washington. Dr. Mokhtar, thank you so much for joining me and welcome back to Intersection. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Just for a start, give us a quick update on where the United States and Florida stand as far as vaccinations go.
1: So right now in the United States, we have vaccinated about 200 million uh, receiving one dose. In Florida, about 24% of people have received two doses, which is a complete vaccination. Mm -hmm.
0: When you look at that 200 million figure, is that kind of reassuring news when you consider where we were like two, three months ago?
1: No, this has been a great success story, in my opinion. The fact that we are vaccinating as fast as we can, and right now, we're averaging over 3 million a day. That will help us to control this pandemic.
0: So I wonder if you could talk in a little more detail about the role that Johnson & Johnson plays in this vaccination campaign, because this, uh, you know, as we know, is a, a one-dose vaccine. So seen in a lot of ways is a little more convenient than the two-shot Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and some of the others out there. Um, And as you noted, about 7 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine have been given out of 187 million nationwide. So how do you see the Johnson & Johnson vaccine role uh, in all of this?
1: So Johnson & Johnson, when it came about, it was a game changer simply because it's easier to handle and it's one dose and one dose only. The other two vaccines that we have in the United States require more refrigeration and are a little bit harder to uh, maintain uh, in terms of cold chain. But what we are looking at right now in Johnson and Johnson, by uh, first of August, we are expecting about 100 million doses from Johnson and Johnson, compared to about 300 million doses between the two Moderna and. Pfizer. So you're looking about one fourth of our supplies in terms of vaccines. So that will slow us down in terms of reaching herd immunity, but it's not a big factor, uh, simply because we will find out soon what will happen with Johnson & Johnson. Remember, the side effects are among women 18 to 48. So we need to figure out more Is it an issue with all ages or simply with a certain age group, certain characteristic? And then we can avoid providing the vaccine to this group and keep going. So we have to wait a little bit. But on the long run, it will impact and slow us down in terms of vaccinating the population at a faster rate.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you expect, and this may be a little bit of crystal ball gazing, but would you expect to see Johnson & Johnson back in circulation fairly soon?
1: Yes, it's possible. So what we have seen, for example, in Europe with AstraZeneca, they paused for a while and they checked the data and they came back and said, we need to keep going. And they changed the age recommendation for the vaccine. So I expect something like this to happen here. Uh, We will pause for a while, get data, make sure that we are not missing any data out there. So is there a delay in reporting of side effects? Let's get all the data, look at it, and then figure out what we need to do. But yeah, it's possible that it will come back in a couple of weeks. We will start vaccinating again with Johnson & Johnson. Remember, these side effects are very rare. And compare them to any other side effects we have, for example, they're really minor. But the fact that CDC and FDA immediately paused and said, let's look at the science and let the science dictate what we need to do, for me, is reassuring and will help us on the long run, right now not so, but on the long run with vaccine confidence.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the issue of herd immunity. Now, you're one of a growing number of experts sounding the warning bell that the supply and demand issue for vaccines is on the verge of flipping, and that we may soon have more vaccines than people willing to take them. Why do you think that?
1: Because many people, if you look at Florida, for example, about 30% of people, 18 or older, are saying they will not take the vaccine. So we have a large percentage of Americans, and it varies by states, but large percentage of Americans are saying we will not take the vaccine. And if you look at the supply of vaccines we have, we have vaccinated 200 million, so those are the people who are willing to take the vaccine. We are 330 million in terms of population. So when you have about 30%, will soon reach that level where we have more vaccines than we have people who are willing to take the vaccine. We really need to address vaccine hesitancy as soon as possible in order to reach your immunity. The science is straightforward when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. We have surveys, the largest one are done right now by Facebook and Google, where they ask people uh, 18 and above. So in the United States, everybody has access to a smartphone. I mean. Uh, some people don't, but the majority of Americans have access to these surveys, and we know what's happening. The trick here is to monitor that now at the local level, by race, ethnicity, by a certain age group, to make sure that we're not missing a pocket where there is hesitancy of the vaccine. We need to go there and address it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at uh, you know people's willingness to take a vaccine from. The start of the availability, so, you know, very late last year, start of this year, January, et cetera. Have you noticed a shift then? I mean, are, are people becoming more or less likely to take a vaccine as these become more available?
1: Comparing to the beginning, we had more people willing to take the vaccine. Until we started hearing about AstraZeneca, we started seeing a decline a small decline, but it was a decline. Uh, We've seen a decline in the past two weeks in vaccine confidence all over the world after the news of AstraZeneca. And right now with the news of Johnson & Johnson, I expect that we'll have more hesitancy was in the United States than before. So it will come, you know hesitancy will go up a little bit, but no, we are in much better place compared to early on when we started releasing the vaccines where many people were not willing to take the vaccine. Right now, simply because about 180 million Americans have gotten a vaccine, we've given about 200 million, but some people gotten two doses. Uh, Every American knows somebody who has received the vaccine and nothing has happened to them. So that has helped us a lot early on. Right now with Johnson & Johnson, it is to be seen what's the impact of stopping Johnson & Johnson on vaccine hesitancy and how big. We know it will increase it, but how big of an impact, we don't know yet.
0: If you're just joining me, my guest is Dr. Ali Mokdad. He's the Chief Strategy Officer for Population Health at the University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Mokhtar, just kind of drilling down a little bit on on that issue of hesitancy. I mean, you talked about the public opinion towards vaccines after the AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccine was paused. Um, I mean, did you see that sort of carry over into the United States, even though that isn't a vaccine that, that we've seen in circulation here?
1: Yes, it did. Even we didn't have AstraZeneca, and we don't have AstraZeneca Uh, we've seen a drop of about 4% uh, in vaccine acceptance in the United States simply after AstraZeneca. And we have seen a different variation by state, but even in my state, in Florida, the confidence declined a little bit. And of course, with Johnson & Johnson, which is in our own backyard, this may have a bigger
0: effect. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of difference between you know the way uh people's attitudes not just to to vaccines but also some of the other disease control methods varying depending on where you are because you know Washington state was kind of the leading edge of the pandemic right i mean the the very some of the very first cases emerged there and some of the worst cases as well so has that kind of colored a little bit the way people have viewed the virus over the last twelve months and beyond?
1: Yes, uh, we have seen it in the United States. In places where uh, we have seen a rise in cases and high level of deaths, New York, for example, people are more willing to take vaccines. People are more likely to be wearing a mask, more likely to reduce their mobility. People have reacted to what they have seen within their own community. And yes, vaccine hesitancy varies a lot, even within our own state. We have less vaccine hesitancy in Seattle, more of a vaccine hesitancy outside Seattle and rural communities in Washington.
0: Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the other states in the United States, uh, which would you say have the largest largest percentages of people that are skeptical of, of vaccinations, whether it's you know about their efficacy or concerns about the safety of them?
1: It uh, it varies by state, and unfortunately, it is more prevalent around the political divide. And I hate to say it, but the red states have, uh, I'm sorry to use that word, but red states have more hesitancy than blue states. And we see it across the United States, unfortunately.
0: Um, and, and if you extrapolate that out, I mean, looking at, at what the uh, IHME has been tracking in terms of vaccine hesitancy globally, which countries are, are faring best and which are, are not doing so well in terms of uptake of vaccinations?
1: So we have seen, in terms of vaccine hesitancy, uh, they're totally different. Hesitancy and vaccine uptake, and let me explain why. Hesitancy is very high in Russia, for example, within the European Union and some of the countries that used to be part of Russia, USSR. Uh, We are seeing vaccine hesitancy very high in some parts of the Middle East, for example, in Jordan and Iraq. Uh, But it's much higher in acceptance of the vaccine is much higher in Africa in places where vaccines have saved a lot of lives. So they're more willing to take the vaccine. As far as for vaccine uptake, uh, simply because rich countries are able to afford and they paid at risk and bought vaccines at risk, we have seen more success stories in rich countries. So when you look at Europe, for example, in England, other European countries in the Middle East, east and israel united arab emirates and bahrain we've seen a much faster uptake of the vaccine than in poor countries in africa or other countries
0: Mm -hmm. does it make any difference where vaccines are manufactured because you know obviously some of those countries you mentioned they're manufacturing their own vaccines right like russia has their own um and others too so does that tip the scales at all in terms of whether people want to take it if they know it's been developed in-house so to speak
1: no, not, not as much. So, for example, if you look at the Russian vaccine, it's been sold and it's been provided to other countries, but at home in Russia, very few people are willing to take the vaccine. So they haven't vaccinated a lot of their own people. It's same in China, for example. They're sending vaccines, but they haven't vaccinated. We're way ahead of them when it comes to the vaccine. So, no, there is no preference in terms of this is my vaccine and I wouldn't take it or unless it is made by my own country. But there is more of uh, right now when you hear all these uh, stop and go with AstraZeneca in many countries and now stop and go eventually with Johnson & Johnson here. My guess, uh, people would be more likely to say I would like to take Pfizer or Moderna, the ones that have not been stopped so far.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, ultimately, and we alluded to this earlier, you know, European regulators decided that the rare blood clots with low platelets from AstraZeneca should be listed as a very rare side effect of that vaccine and the risks from COVID-19 outweighing the risk from the vaccine. Do you think that's what we'll see in the United States when it comes to Johnson & Johnson?
1: No, in the United States, we are in a different uh, position simply because we have uh, two good vaccines that have not had any side effects. So the comparison in many countries in the world is between, let's say, AstraZeneca and no vaccine. In the United States, we have the luxury to compare, you know, Johnson & Johnson to Pfizer and Moderna. So I would see going forward, even when we uh, reuse again Johnson & Johnson, some people would rather say, I want Pfizer and Moderna. It, It may happen my advice for everybody is to take any vaccine that's licensed by the FDA. And the fact that FDA and CDC stopped Johnson & Johnson should tell everybody else that safety is first when it comes to the United States. And then we need to take any vaccine that's available to us as soon as it's available to us.
0: Can you think of a time in recent history, Dr. Mokhtar, when there's been this kind of boiler room situation where, where you know, whole countries have really kind of Gathered together, and, and you've had multiple vaccines or multiple therapies being developed at once and at fairly high pace?
1: No, this is historic. And we have never seen such an advancement in science that a vaccine is developed. If you look at the mRNA vaccines and in production, clinical trials, and now being administered, no, this has, we've never seen anything like it in science before.
0: There are advances anytime you have some great disruption, right? It it leads to advances in science and technology looking ahead. I mean, do do you see that kind of playing out long-term for the way um, therapies and vaccines will be developed when we're not in a pandemic?
1: No, definitely. Right now we're learning a lot, and uh, I'm very optimistic when it comes to the mRNA vaccines, and they have a potential use for other diseases, cancer, certain cancers, for example, So this opened a lot of doors for us in the scientific community to look at different ways of administering medication and vaccines to prevent diseases.
0: Well, Dr. Ali Mukhtar, Professor of Health Metric Sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and Chief Strategy Officer for Population Health at the University of Washington. Thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank
1: you. My pleasure. Be safe. Bye.
0: Still to come, we'll talk to Neil Voles, Deputy Director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, about the ongoing quest to give the formerly incarcerated access to voting, housing, jobs, and how the pandemic has complicated that mission. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Last November, Neil Volz was one of more than 11 million Floridians to cast a vote in the presidential election. It was a significant moment for Volz. He's a returning citizen. He served time in prison for a felony, and he was able to vote thanks to the passage of Amendment 4 two years earlier. Volz, who's the deputy director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, says there's still a lot of work to be done to restore the civil rights of people who've completed felony sentences and to protect the rights of people still behind bars. He joins me now to talk about the Coalition's bus tour and what he's keeping an eye on this legislative session and the impact of the pandemic on the incarcerated. Well, Neil Voles, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition is on a statewide bus tour, right, promoting things like information on clemency for the formerly incarcerated, how to register to vote, housing access and things like that. I'm wondering, though, are you getting good interest in the tour now that we aren't in an election yet?
2: Yeah, we've we we are we've had hundreds of people show up at
0: various events across the state, and our free-to-vote
2: bus tour is just picking up steam as we get out and uh, help people register to vote, help people learn about getting plugged into uh, the political process, and really battling voter suppression by being aggressive and getting into the community and, and encouraging people to get involved.
0: You bring up voter suppression, um, and there is one bill in particular I think that people are paying attention to, it sort of mirrors what we've seen in Georgia, uh, would impose some restrictions on, on voting access. Is that something you're following fairly closely as the legislative session winds towards its close? Uh, that's
2: absolutely something that we're following closely, and our our membership and returning citizens and uh people who are involved in the community are actively opposed to restrictions on voting. We believe that the more people are able to vote, the more vibrant our democracy is, the safer
0: and healthier our communities will be when the amendment amendment four passed a couple of years ago, you know there was a lot of interest in that, right, and in some ways, I wonder if the hard work continued after that because. You have to follow through and then make sure that people have all these things in place so they are then able to vote, right? It's not just enough to say, we've passed the amendment, we can kind of pack up and go home now.
2: No, that's right. Yeah. Our, our, our North Star is the long term empowerment of people with past felony convictions in the state of Florida. So we knew Amendment 4 was just one step in that journey. And it was a big step. And it's given us momentum to move into these next seasons as we continue to break down barriers for people to uh, participate in democracy, but also break down barriers to, you know, things like housing and access to employment and the ability to seek opportunity and ultimately just be like anybody else in society after we've completed our sentence.
0: Do you think the people who've been convicted of felonies and served their sentences, the formerly incarcerated, are they kind of more vulnerable to not just the health challenges we've seen over the last 12 months, but also the kind of economic strife that we've seen because of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, COVID has really opened our eyes to a lot of the challenges that people with past felony convictions face. It's also uh, shown us the challenges to helping people who are incarcerated right now. The idea that Florida was almost one of the last states to provide vaccines to people who are uh, currently in prison, as well as people who work in prisons, uh, was really troubling because at the end of the day, Uh, that wasn't something that we needed to do. It was a choice that was made. And so we know that that means we need to go continue to talk to people and and remind people that all of us deserve dignity. Every single human being deserves dignity and honor uh, no matter where they are.
0: Do you feel like that's sometimes a bit hard for people to wrap their heads around? Like whether you're in prison or you've served your sentence, you still should be afforded a certain set of rights. And and just because you're behind bars doesn't mean you should be treated as less than, than human.
2: No, that's exactly right. I, I think that's the deeper part of this ongoing movement. There is the, the peace around democracy. There is the peace around access to employment and, and housing and how we're going to live together. But deep down, it's really about how we see each other and whether we value every single human life, whether we see dignity and honor in every person, no matter where they happen to be or what mistakes they might have made.
0: Back to November 2020, you know, it was the first year, the uh, first presidential election, rather, since the passage of Amendment 4. Looking back, Neil, do you think returning citizens had the impact on the election that some thought they might?
2: Well, we, we saw the 2020 election as an incredible celebration and victory for returning citizens and our families all across the state of Florida. Uh, we saw almost 270,000 returning citizens and family members of returning citizens who had not voted uh, previously get out and vote. And we think that that is something that's really worth celebrating. Our bus tour at the end of the uh, 2020 election was a true celebration of democracy at every stop, every early voting stop. People who hadn't had their voices heard in their local school board race were coming out and telling us their stories. It was a true blue celebration of democracy. What I like to say is I don't think there's a better evangelist for democracy than someone who lost the right to vote and got it back. And we got to see that play out here in the state of Florida in a large, large scale in 2020.
0: hmm Um, is there some urgency then, you know, in in years when it's, there's not an election, not a presidential election, so people might not necessarily be thinking about what they need to do to vote and, you know, how easy it is for them to vote or not, as it may be. Is there sort of more urgency for an organization like the Rights Restoration Coalition to keep going on these bus tours and and keep this issue in the forefront of people's minds? Yeah,
2: we think it's very important to keep this issue in the forefront of people's minds, because we know we're still at the beginning of the journey. We know that, 1.4 million people with past felony convictions were impacted by Amendment 4, and there's a lot of people who still need to hear that they are eligible, that need to uh, see uh, the opportunity to get registered and see what it means to get engaged in the community and be a leader in the community and how we can turn that past pain into good public policy and, and real purpose.
0: What so? What what do you do then to turn it into good public policy? You know, we have a pretty truncated uh, legislative session here in the state of Florida. There isn't a lot of time to get bills passed, and you know, sometimes bills that that address things like um, the rights of the formerly incarcerated might not necessarily be high on the priority list. So, how do you how do you kind of make push those things through?
2: Yeah, I think what, what's important for us is that we have a long term expectation, and that we look at each step as, as an opportunity to get to kind of a, a, a bigger vision for what Florida could be as it relates to criminal justice reform and how the legal uh, system works. So each session, each step is an opportunity for us to get more people plugged in and just keep seeing that water rise uh, to the point where we believe we will see a real change if we continue day to day to just get up, put our work boots on, roll up our sleeves and care about people first.
0: Neil, are there some other uh, laws that you're you're also paying attention to, whether they're um, positive or they could have some negative impact for um, for people who you're advocating for, like this session at least.
2: Yeah, we, uh, we talked about the, uh, the bill around voting that, w- that we're opposed to and that uh, we are actively uh, fighting against. But there is a, a bill around uh, juvenile expungement uh, that is working its way through the legislature uh, that would impact a lot of uh, returning citizens and our families. And that's a bill that we've been actively engaged in. Uh, we've had in-district visits and uh, our, our, our community is, is behind that bill and pushing. And we're hopeful to see that ultimately get signed uh, into law by the governor.
0: And, and that would do what? That would, that would sort of give uh, people who are convicted before they were 18 a chance to, for, for a fresh start?
2: Uh, yeah, it, it would, it would uh, make the juvenile diversion program work a little bit better um, so that people who do go through the diversion uh, process actually can benefit from an expungement as they're trying to find employment or, or housing or move on with their lives.
0: As you've gone through this process, Neil, kind of experiencing incarceration and then sort of on the other side of things as an advocate for the rights of, of people who spend time behind bars, do you, I, I suppose, a little surprised at the, the vast variety of, of causes that you could be taking up? I mean, like juvenile justice is a whole uh, field of, of, of endeavor for people who want to um, you know, elevate the rights of those people, right?
2: Yeah, so we, we have a, a policy platform that's on our website that actually came about from... Uh, talking to you know, over 7,000 returning citizens who filled out surveys and sat down and talked with us. And, you know, it formed us in terms of, like you said, this, this large uh, kind of group of issues um, that uh, this particular community, our community, uh, feels very passionate about. And so it gave us an opportunity to kind of see that that bigger picture, that, that, that idea of, like, if we continue to put in the hard work, uh, change hearts and minds, engage our loved ones and our neighbors, uh, that we can see real change come to
0: Florida. I want to ask, too, about your situation. So both you and your colleague Desmond Mead, the founder of um, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, were petitioning to to have your rights restored, Desmond applying for a full pardon. And and your rights were restored, but then Desmond Mead, his his petition was turned down. I wonder if you, what your kind of personal reflection is on that. I mean, obviously, pleased to, to have your rights restored, but it must be a blow for... For yourself to see somebody you've worked so closely with be turned back again
2: yeah, I'm telling you, it was like a Dickens novel. It was like the best of times, the worst of times in and, and, and the fact that I felt you know a renewal in, in my spirit and and my ability to move forward in my life, and yet somebody who's a brother to me, who's a friend, who's a family you know- was denied that that ability. It really exemplified the challenges in the system, this idea that we place in the hands of elected people, politicians, who decides to move on with their life and doesn't. It, it exemplified this need that we could, we could create a better system, a system that would allow people to move forward with their lives uh, in, in a way that isn't bound by the, the whims and the decisions of, of, of politicians.
0: You can't really go any higher than the governor in the state of Florida. So sort of getting that, that denial at that level, um, I mean, what else do you do aside from maybe waiting for a change in, in, uh, in leadership at the state level?
2: I'll tell you what, on the, 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 the day that uh, Desmond was denied his pardon was also a day in which we saw policy changes around uh, clemency that impact hundreds of thousands of people's lives. And one of the things that I'm just so impressed always with Desmond is, is that he is hopeful. You know, he believes in love and he was very focused on the impact that those changes were going to have on others, uh, even as he was walking through a, a tough, tough day himself. Um, so I think, you know, you get up, you keep fighting and you focus on people. And there's a lot of challenges, you know, that people face. And if we can continue wherever we are, however uh, we do it to to chip away at some of those barriers that get in the way of a person's opportunity to simply be treated like another human being, uh, then, then, then that's how you respond to anything that comes your way.
0: Is it tough though? And sometimes you must have an urge to just say, I want to, kind of fade into the background here. I've, I've done the work as far as, as this goes, but there's also this tailwind, right? You must feel a sense of obligation to help people coming after you, but do you sort of also think, I wish I could just take a break for a bit? Uh,
2: <laughs> I, I guess on a personal level, sometimes the, 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 the struggle is a struggle, um, but at the same time, the purpose uh, really fuels our efforts. I think what we see with so many of our leaders uh, in this movement are folks who at one point in their life were willing to work twice as hard to get half as far and now we're in a season where we really feel like our experiences and our our effort can have an impact so we're all in and we're just uh hitting the gas every day
0: mm-hmm. uh, literally with this bus tour how, how how much further do you have to go with that as well to uh, this time around
2: uh well so, so the bus tour is uh, we're, we're going through Second Chance Month, with, which is April. We've actually got stops this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, in the Muck, in Palm Beach, in uh, Orlando, and then you know every week going forward for for the next many months. Uh, we the bus is a the bus is a staple, and it's a, it's an incredibly powerful tool to raise awareness and, and organize people as we continue to move uh, towards our goal of empowering returning citizens all across the state.
0: Right, it's it's a, it's a billboard for the movement. I wanted to ask too quickly, if I could, Neil, about the virtual conference this week. Um, What are you highlighting and and who are some of the, the key speakers there?
2: So our Reimagining Justice Conference is a statewide virtual conference where we're going to be challenging people to reimagine what justice looks like in the state of Florida, what democracy looks like in the state of Florida. And we've got some great panelists. We've got a variety of state attorneys, a variety of legislators, but we also have people who have been a part of this movement uh, for many, many years. Folks like Piper Kerman, who wrote Orange is the New Black, uh, Marcus Bullock, who's the CEO of Flick Shop, who took the pain of being incarcerated and became what uh, Forbes magazine calls the Instagram of the prison. Uh, and, and we've got Tara Simmons, who is actually a returning citizen who became the first elected state representative of Washington joining us. We've got leaders of groups, uh, you know, on the right and on the left and folks who don't have any sort of political affiliation. But at the core of it is a real conversation, authentic conversation around a vision for a better Florida, a, a bold vision that says we can do better and that we should focus on the real lives of people who are impacted by the criminal justice system as we talk about these issues.
0: When you talk about the vision of a better Florida, how long do you think that is going to take to become a reality?
2: Uh, we, we see this as, as a years-long effort, uh, you know, built behind daily discipline and hard work and a belief that when we focus on real people's lives that change is possible but this is the kind of thing that we know is going to take years and years uh, to fully see but uh, but the purpose is worthwhile and
0: uh, so we're excited uh, for every day. Neil thanks for your time appreciate it. Awesome. Neil Voles is the Deputy Director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Up next a conversation with Eric Camarillo. He says his nonprofit focused on homelessness saw a surge in the number of people needing help during the pandemic. That conversation went Intersection returns this is intersection i'm matthew petty eric camarillo has been working for years to help the homeless through some of the challenges they face like access to food and clothing camarillo C- camarillo who's the ceo of the nonprofit salt says during the pandemic he saw a spike in the number of people needing help joins the show now to talk about the rollout of a mobile laundry trailer and the fight against homelessness in Central Florida. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for for having me. So you're partnering up with the city of Orlando on what I understand is a mobile laundry unit. Does that kind of describe what's going on?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's right. So um, we currently run a mobile day service center for the unsheltered um laundry was identified as something that was a need for them so we did uh with the city of orlando and also a corporate sponsor um simply healthcare and our own you know our our donors um put the money together to get a laundry trailer with six commercial stackable washer and dryers
0: and so has this actually debuted have you have you given it a a test drive out on the street so so to speak we
3: have, like, as we speak right now, right outside, we're running, uh, both, uh, all six washers and all six dryers right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So just talk me through the the logistics. How does it work? Do you, like, how do, first of all, how do people know where to go to, like, where this trailer is going to be?
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a great partnership with the Christian Service Center, um, here in Orlando, right across from the soccer stadium, um basically we get we so much traffic here that we've actually stationed our trailers here for now. So we do get a pretty good amount of traffic. We get about 400 people, at least uh, a week that come through. Um, and so, you know, those are the, you know, those are the people that, you know, they come to, we have a clothing trailer. We call it our change trailer. They come up to the window, they register for a, the, the services they like that day, whether it's a shower haircut, laundry, um, you know uh case management whatever it is and then we we go ahead and get them kind of in the queue for each service so if someone is going up to get laundry services um we give them a certain size mesh bag uh make them you know we make sure that pockets are empty so that you know doesn't mess up the washers or dryers and and we they put it in that mesh bag and then we place that mesh bag in there and run the the washer with the their clothes in it to you know to get everything washed but yeah that's that's uh Pretty much how it goes, and then once it's washed, we just move it up to the dryer, and then uh, get another person in in
0: there. And back to the number, you, you're saying about 400 people a week, roughly, are, are using the service.
3: Yeah, about 400 people a week are coming through to our mobile base um, service center here. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that what you anticipated, or do you, do you have a sense of you know what that number represents? Is it is it going to grow? Do you think?
3: Uh, you know, it's been growing. Um, I, I I mean, we've seen. I, I believe from March to September of last year, um, we were seeing two new people, new to homelessness, two people new to homelessness every time we did, uh, you know, in one of our outreach events, you know, we're open, uh, two new people. Starting in October of last year, we started to see four new people new to homelessness every time we we were open. We're open four days a week at that time. So um, it's, it's, it seems to be growing um, you know just this past quarter we saw um you know January to March we saw almost a thousand different different people um during that time, and seventeen percent of them were new to homelessness
0: how How do you reflect on that like does that sort of scare you a little bit that statistic
3: you know it it, it it's scary yeah but but it it's also um it's motivating for us. You know, we, we have a big vision, you know, we want to expand, we want to duplicate this mobile day service center, grow it, um, provide even more services, operate more days, more hours, um, because we know the need is, is growing. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, it's, it's something that we're, we're looking at and we're saying, you know, what, we're, we're, we're up for the challenge. You know, let's, let's fundraise more, let's create more partnerships. Let's, um, let's do this. So that's kind of our, our attitude
0: toward it. And how long have you been in operation for? How long has Salt been, been running for?
3: Yeah. So our, our uh, mobile day service center, um, we launched and in September of 2018, Um, we, Salt Outreach itself has been in operation since 2011, Um, uh, September of 2011. We started with just food, Um, you know, we just, a bunch of young people wanting to do something. We, we started with food, you know, two people feeding 15, um, and then it just grew to hundreds of people feeding hundreds of people biweekly, and, uh, and then we started doing surveys. Um, so, and, you know, we did surveys to figure out what their need was. I think a lot of people like to guess what someone's need is, especially if they're like homeless, like, oh, they need this or they need that, but we, we did surveys, um, figured our clothes was a was a big need that was easier, you know, easy way to start, so we got the clothing trailer in 2016. And then did more surveys, realized clothing didn't mean much if they weren't clean. <laughs> so we fundraised 40000 in 2018 for a shower trailer. And, uh, and, and that's when we got the shower trailer uh, is when we kind of realized what, what was happening was we were kind of creating this mobile day center concept. Um, and then when coronavirus hit, it was just a natural, you know, us and the city have had a relationship for about a year prior coronavirus hit, we're an outside operation, um, you know, right when that hit, uh, you know, and, and understandably so, you know, a lot of organizations that serve the homeless kind of had to pull back with the uncertainty around the virus. Um, so a lot of people on the street were, were, didn't have really anywhere to go, you know, so when we decided to continue operating, because it seemed like our operation was probably going to be the safest during that time, um, and so that's kind of what really catapulted the growth of our organization is around that time that partnership with the city
0: you've had a decade essentially of looking at the issue of homelessness in the city of Orlando and the I guess the greater metro area what's your assessment of where we are and you know how far we need to go as a city or as a community to to really tackle this yeah um
3: you know what? I, I here in, in Central Florida, um, housing is, is the biggest issue, affordable housing. Um, that's that's one of the toughest things. I mean, even today, we were just talking to a client today and, and luckily we're able to to um help them get into housing, but their rent's gonna be twelve hundred a month. Um and um you know, this this particular person has some other organizations working with them, they're gonna be able to handle that but that's a rare case you know Um, yeah I think affordable housing is really kind of one of the biggest um, uh, hurdles that we have to uh, figure out how to how to jump over as a a, a city and as a coalition of organizations helping the unsheltered Um, and then on on top of that you know I think you know, coronavirus, when, when the virus hit, the pandemic hit, I mean, it, it left it left a lot of people that were just on the edge, kind of pushed them over the edge, you know. And so trying to figure out how to recover from that and, and kind of reach those people right there that, that are kind of like between the, the you know, within 12 months of, of moving into homelessness, that kind of gray area. I think that's, you know, a lot of people just see an extra push. I, I know we had a guy who's an older guy. Uh, coronavirus led to his homelessness um we ended up helping him he just needed help to apply for a job you know and build a resume so we helped him with that um he went to the job the next day he got a job seventeen dollars an hour as a carpenter and his first paycheck is off the street you know so so there's 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 people in that area there that that we're also trying to kind of um work with um but yeah that's that's kind of um i guess that would be my assessment
0: I feel like there's been a bit of a paradigm shift too in terms of how to the, the the kind of theory of how to help people who are who are homeless, right? Things have changed a bit from just saying we are going to provide a shelter for the night and provide food to how can we address some of the other things like uh, you know finding I- IDs so that people can apply for jobs or even sort of helping with them with some of those those other skills. Um, have you kind of seen that yourself, you know, from, from starting where you did 10 years ago and then developing into what your organization does now?
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I think we have, we, we, you know, it's, like you said, it's, it's more than just getting them shelter. Um, There are a lot of things in between. If they don't have an ID, they're not going to get into housing. Um, You know? And so that, that, that was a great example. So like, One of our goals is to, you know, one of the metrics we measure, I guess I should say, is after services with us, the Recoordinate Community effort, do they take the next step to end their homelessness? So that's kind of one of the metrics we we try to measure. So last year, um, you know, we we served about 1,500 unique individuals with 30,000 units of service. We follow the track of each of those 1,500 people. And we found that um, through a coordinated community effort, um, uh, 30% of them took the next step to end their homelessness, um, which is either, like you said, getting an ID, accepting case management. Sometimes they need, um, you know, to get their social security, get social security disability or social security retirement um, to have that income there, which will help them get into housing. Um, you know, there's so many different things that, that we need to look at um, when trying to get someone moved into like permanent supportive housing or something like that
0: do you have a lobbying arm as well too i mean if you think about some of the issues around housing that's a pretty complex thing to solve well in some ways it isn't it it could just come down to to funding and where to get that funding from but getting it you know would involve does involve uh some some strategy at at kind of state government level and and elsewhere so is that something that your organization um, chips in with as well
3: uh we haven 't we haven 't done that
0: yet um to be honest with you it's it's something we
3: 've we 've um briefly talked about but we we don 't know exactly where to start with that so we we would actually you know we're we 're kind of growing i mean just like last year in twenty twenty you know we it was we were an all volunteer organization going into twenty twenty you know now we have fourteen employees you know um operating four days a week and last year we're operating once a month
0: that's a pretty remarkable change of, of operations right i mean i'm sure there's there's probably not many companies that could say essentially they went from being all volunteer to having a staff that size in 2020 no less
3: yeah yeah it's, it's been a year it's, it's really crazy just to think i mean it's it's crazy just thinking about it and reflecting i myself moved full-time just um just a week and a half ago um you know, for the length of the organization, I was working a job, working two jobs, and in school, and juggling all these things. So it's it's been a. I I I really do see um as we as time goes, you know, uh, that we will kind of, I I believe kind of go more into that realm and and kind of dive a little deeper the lobbying aspect to try and help in in that area. But for now, we don't have any
0: uh, solid plans yet. So you're you're a week and a half into your. Job, you're your full time now. Job as CEO of the operation. How, how does that feel? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, let me tell you, uh, it, it feels good. I, uh, you know, leaving
3: my other job. I, I worked in uh, human resources. Um, I, I, you know, it 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 was a little scary. You know, there's some sacrifice involved with me doing this. Uh, you know, I'm married, and, and you know, a lot of things we had to had to think about and and stuff like that. But but I mean, this is this is my passion. You know, um, there's something I love doing. It doesn't feel like a job, you know, um, and it's something I would do for free and I have done it for, free for a long time, you know, so it's, it's just, uh, it's really, it's really cool. It's it's a good feeling.
0: It's mm-hmm. so a kind of a leap of faith, but something that you're obviously, you've had plenty of practice leading up to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Lots of, lots of
3: crazy stories. Yeah, for sure.
0: I'm struck too, just by that, that idea that the, the number of people you were serving a week essentially doubled. Over the course of the pandemic, and of course, you know there are fairly obvious reasons for that—the uh, the economic turmoil that the um, the country was plunged into, and especially here in Central Florida. Talking to some people who are, you know, this as you say, this would be their first time homeless. Um, how do you how do you kind of help them navigate that? Because that must be a very scary situation for people uh, if this is their first experience of being unsheltered. Oh, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, we had someone just uh, a few weeks ago um, who expressed um, suicidal ideation and and even a plan involved with that. You know, we're blessed to have um, two. We have a licensed clinical social worker on staff and a a master's level social worker, and they were working with her. Um, And uh, it's been rough. You know, a lot of people are in their cars as well that come out here um, that are newly homeless and, and, you know, it, it really kind of, you know, uh, opens your eyes that it could really just happen to anyone, you know? Um, and so, yeah, what, what we do is, is, you know, if someone comes and they ask for help, they're new to this thing, you know, we know, provide the basic services, you know, we, we recommend that they go sit with a case manager and the case manager really helps them to navigate, um, and, and create a plan. So, so our case managers follow like a four-step process. So we assess, uh, you know, we have an initial assessment we created. We assess kind of where they are. Uh, We figure out uh, what referrals would work best for them. So we definitely are um, really glad here in Central Florida, there's so many organizations that are doing so much, and, and that's been a real help and real blessing to a lot of people. So we figure out what referrals will work best for them. Then we create a plan for them. Uh, And then we, we try to hold them accountable to their plan, you know, sometimes, you know, and in in the sense of just following up with them, creating follow-up appointments, seeing how things are going. Um, But like that woman, for example, newly homeless, you know, very, very depressed while we were meeting with her, um, she got a call and it was a job for a job interview. Um, And then she got another call for another job interview. So, so things are kind of looking up for her, but I mean, you could imagine it's, it's definitely scary. Yeah. Uh, for for a lot of people, so we just do what we can. Our case management program has really been a key component in helping people and navigate being newly homeless.
0: As far as the partnership with the city of Orlando and the the uh, the other nonprofit you mentioned, is that like a, a funding arrangement? Do they help sort of sustain the the operation of of um you know the trailer and what you do? Well, um,
3: so the city of Orlando, yes, they they did provide uh, a grant
0: for us. Um, you know,
3: last year. Um, it all happened so quickly with coronavirus. You know, every we just had to act quick. But last year, um, I believe we received about about two hundred thousand from from the city, and this year it will be about the same, um, about two hundred thousand we receive. Um, we do need to raise about four hundred to five hundred thousand to sustain our operation. Um, so, so we are like doing what we can as far as applying for grants. And you know, like last year we had just from corporate. Uh, sponsors and individuals raised about 160,000, so that put us right where we needed to be for that year. Um, and this year, we're you know we're just we're doing what we can on the fundraising side. Me going full time is, is kind of a key part of that. Um, I have my my master's in nonprofit management and certification as a fundraising executive, so that's that's helpful for me to kind of put all my time into the fundraising effort for us to hit our goals because we. We also want to expand, you know, we have we have some proposals out in Sanford and Daytona have a proposal out in Miami. Um, We're really looking to to duplicate what we're doing as well. So um, so we're trying to my goal going full time is to raise a million this year. Um, That'll help us to be fully funded here in Orlando and then help us to expand in at least uh, one or two other places.
0: That's pretty ambitious.
3: Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but
0: <laughs> I mean,
3: the year before in 2019, we raised 90,000 total. Uh, in 2020, it, it was up to about 360, so it was like four times. So I'm like, and that came out of nowhere. So we're just, you know, we we uh, let me tell you. So it's so funny, um, and and I believe, you know, I'm I, I uh, I'm a Christian, and so I definitely. Um, spent a lot of time talking to God and, and, and asking him to help with uh, the fundraising effort. And I remember uh, one week I was kind of down, uh, you know, I have those moments sometimes. And I was thinking, okay, we need to raise at least another 50000 for our case management program to be in a good place. I get a phone call two days later from an acquaintance of mine asking, hey, um, how's salt going? What, what are your needs right now? So I mentioned the 50000 he said, "Okay, I'll send a check for fifty thousand on Tuesday."
0: Just like that.
2: <laughs> um,
3: just like that. Yeah, and i i didn't request it. I didn't—I didn't put in a proposal. I didn't—you I didn't, know—I didn't ask for it. It just happened, you know. And so, it is
0: ambitious, but I do believe that uh, that we're going to hit
3: the goal um,
0: with God's help. Well, Eric, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah. No. Thank you so much again for having us. Eric Camarillo is the CEO of the nonprofit Salt, which provides services for the homeless in Orlando, including a mobile laundry trailer. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find archived shows on our website, wmf.e.org/intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.